Hello and welcome to Politics at Kings uh, with me, Jack Lewis and Mohammed Zahir. Uh, like before, we're doing this uh, over Zoom because of coronavirus. So today we're going to take a look back in time and try and analyse the reasons behind the decline of the Islamic Empire. Uh, so this is a topic that Mohammed is very knowledgeable about. Um, so I will hand you over to him. For centuries after its founding, um, the Islamic world was one of the most advanced societies well ahead of Western Europe. At the start of the 9th century, the Islamic world boasted a significantly large share of the world's urban population compared to its Christian counterpart in Europe. So just as a brief point of explanation to the audience, um, city growth can be used as a primary indicator of economic growth in the pre-industrial world, lacking measures such as GDP, which we might use today. So just to put it into context, um, out of 22 of the largest cities in the world at the time, 14 of them were under Islamic rule. Um, even 500 years later, while some of the urban population of the Muslim world had been decimated by Mongols, the Muslim world was not far behind the Christian population of Western Europe, uh, which had sort of like begun to thrive again, especially in Northern Italy. It was around about the 1800s that the fortunes of the Muslim world and Christian Europe had like undergone a complete reversal of sorts. The Industrial Revolution was already underway in Great Britain and European powers had also colonized much of the planet. Um, Jack, do you want to briefly uh, explain to our audience what the Industrial Revolution was? Yeah, of course. Uh, so the Industrial Revolution uh, is commonly regarded as starting uh, in Great Britain. And essentially it was the discovery uh, and usage of steam-powered uh, machinery and technology uh, using coal um, as a kind of base for heating steam and using energy. Uh, it led to both the creation of new methods of transport, such as steamships and steam-powered railways, but it also led to new methods of mass production. So mass production of, for example, textiles, uh, food, and so forth. So essentially, it was an accelerator to progress. It allowed nations to communicate with each other much more quickly. It allowed people to gain access to greater levels of wealth in a shorter amount of time. Um, so why, Mohammed, do you think that the Industrial Revolution is so important in the context of specifically the decline of the Islamic world? So when you talk about the decline of the Islamic world, um authors such as Kuru have uh, categorized them into three different schools of thought? Yeah, so to, to expand on that, um, you could argue that you have the essentialists uh, who say that Islam is the main factor in the decline of the Muslim world and that Islam in itself is not compatible with economic growth or development. Uh, there's another school of thought uh, called the anti-colonialists uh, who blame Western imperialism and colonialism for the decline of the Muslim world. And then after that, you have new institutionalists uh, who blame the ineffective institutions of the Islamic world for its comparative underdevelopment and decline. While Islam has long been a convenient scapegoat for many Orientalist authors who seem to treat it as the defining flaw for all that ails the Islamic world, others uh, rightly dismiss such theories as being far too simplistic and going against factual evidence. The success of the Islamic world in the 8th to mid-11th century demonstrates that Islam was perfectly compatible with economic development. In fact, developments within financial and commercial institutions in the first few centuries of Islam were way ahead of their time. Authors like Rubin um, argue that economic development is less likely under any religion, not just Islam. This is because any powerful interest group that does not prioritize economic growth is less likely to oversee economic success. And in another sense as well, one, one, way, you can fa one way that you can 
disagree with the other school of thought, um, the anti-colonialists in this case, could be to say that actually when you look at the Islamic world, uh, decline had already set in before you had mass colonization by Western powers. So you, you can't really explain the decline of the Islamic world just by saying, oh, the Western powers invaded and suddenly their influence is to blame. It's not quite as simplistic as that. Yeah, I'm hesitant to lend much credence to the anti-colonialist view of the decline of the Islamic world because uh, it kind of makes it seem as if Muslim society was a helpless target under the machinations of more sophisticated foreign actors uh, and that there wouldn't have been any need for systemic reform if outsiders had behaved differently. And further to that as well, you have uh, Kuran uh, being skeptical of this line of thought because he believes anti-colonialism fails to address why Christian Europeans triumphed at the time when they did. Uh, and he notes that previous attempts to bring the Islamic world under foreign control, such as the Crusades, were unsuccessful. So surely there were some factors in, for example, the Industrial Revolution that privileged Europe over the Islamic world that were perhaps less prevalent um, 700 years previously during the Crusades. So coming back to your questions about why the Industrial Revolution factors into the decline of the Islamic world, um, the third school of thought, um, the new institutionalists argue that weak institutions uh, lead to underdevelopment and effective institutions lead to development. Many scholars are of the belief that the egalitarian nature of Islamic institutions, such as Sharia, might have been useful in pre-industrial times. But the failure of economic institutions in the Islamic world to evolve adequately compared to the advances made in the West after the Industrial Revolution, mostly because of the continued marginalization of independent scholars and merchants in the Islamic world, and the increasing reliance on military leaders and religious authorities as propagating agents led to this decline. So I wanted to briefly discuss the impact of the printing press just as a kind of case study uh, for European versus Islamic world development. Um, so I know you had the uh, Gutenberg press uh, starting in the late 15th century uh, in Europe, and then that kind of taking on a much more prominent role during the Renaissance in terms of the spreading of scientific and philosophical ideas across European nations, um, promoting reform in the realms of politics, but also more greater levels of exploration in the sciences. Um, I'm just wondering, Mohammed, why the invention of the printing press may not have had the same level of impact in the Islamic world at that particular time. So in order to discuss why the West benefited from the invention of the printing press while the Islamic world didn't, it's important to understand the role of propagating agents. Now, rulers can lay claim to power through different means. Some can use traditional grounds. Uh, for example, historically, the population is more likely to accept the heir to the throne as having the right to rule than, let's say, non-heirs. Other times, rulers uh, use uh, personal traits and characteristics to convince the population that they're the right person in charge. It could be valor or bravery or charisma. Saladin or Napoleon or Elizabeth I are just a few examples of rulers who did that. But rulers can also use legitimizing agents or other groups of people or individuals to convince the population to accept their right to rule. Religious authorities have long been such legitimizing agents for various governments and rulers throughout history. Now, these propagating agents often have their own reasons for propping up 
a certain ruler as opposed to another and that's often because to protect their own self-interest um, and rulers that are heavily reliant on propagating agents to stay in power are then more amenable to put in place legislation that favors those propagating agents or legitimizers. Now, Islamic rulers were heavily reliant on religious authorities. At that time, religious scholars were the largest educated class in the Islamic world. Now, they saw the printing press as a threat to their status as gatekeepers to religion if the population would become educated and uh, would be able to read the quran or religious scripts um, they would not be as reliant on religious scholars and religious uh, authorities as they were so what they did was that they convinced the rulers to pass a ban on the printing of anything in the arabic script Printing in other languages was allowed, but the majority of the population couldn't make any use of it. Now, the devastating impact of this decision can't be overstated enough. In the 274 years it took for the Islamic world to adopt the printing press after the Western world had already done so, the Western world's literacy rate had climbed to 31%. The Islamic world languished at 1%. And I think that that's interesting to contextualize in the face of developments in Europe. So very soon after the Gutenberg press was begun, you had the emergence of Protestantism uh, under Martin Luther, but quickly expanding into Calvinism in Switzerland and then into the Church of England in the UK and across, across Europe. Um, and part of the um, ideology behind Protestantism was the idea that the masses should be able to read the Bible in their own languages. Um, so Protestantism would have practically meant you'd have had to have created thousands and thousands of new Bibles translated from Latin into multiple different languages. And this was made much more easier by the prevalence of the printing press. And then in Europe for the first time, you would have had hundreds of thousands of people actually being able to interpret what the religious authorities were saying and to question it in a very active way. And then as Muhammad was saying, uh, in comparison in the Islamic world at that time, the religious authorities uh, who had more power comparatively compared to the power they had in Europe, the Islamic religious authorities knew that the printing press would challenge their legitimacy by making their teachings more accessible, but also easier to criticize. Um, so I think the it's interesting to consider the role of intellectual freedom and openness to political and economic development as well. Now, I remember uh, reading Mohammed um, from the Kuru uh, piece that you sent me, and he was talking about in the earlier period of the um, Islamic empire, so sort of 8th, 9th, 10th century, there was a bit more um, kind of intellectual openness at that time and a little bit less monopolized control from religious and state elites. I'm just kind of wondering if you can enlighten us a bit on what that early Islamic world was like and what kind of uh, philosophical and economic developments may have been taking place at that time. So between the 8th and mid 11th century, the Islamic world contained a dynamic creative class of independent scholars and independent merchants who were not bogged down by the government. According to Cohen, um, during that period, only 9% of scholars received income from the state, while over 90% of them were self-funded. Many were either merchants themselves or they belonged to merchant families. Now, 
Kuru argues that this led to a vibrant dynamic that was conducive to intellectual and economic stimulation. And although the government did try to bring them under control through coercive means, such as torture or, or imprisonment, many stood firm on the principle uh, of separation between the state and religion. Um, Abu Hanifa, one of the most revered intellectuals in Islamic history, was just like one example of a scholar who was imprisoned for refusing a government position and standing up to the caliph. And that was like way back in the 8th century. I'm just, I'm just wondering as well on the, because um, you say about the separation of church and state, for example, um, but then whenever I've heard discussion about early, the early Islamic world, there's often talk of uh, Shaharia law. Um, and I'm just wondering how that kind of fits into this uh, overall period as well. Sharia or Islamic law was one of the most important institutions of the Islamic world. It governed almost every aspect of a citizen's life, uh, including finance and trade, which were key areas where uh, the Islamic world fell significantly behind the West. Now, as we've already mentioned, uh, Sharia was not only perfectly adequate for the pre-industrial world, it was actually ahead of its time. But the failure of Islamic institutions to adapt and evolve and change with the times after the Industrial Revolution in the West meant that the Islamic world fell significantly behind and could not keep up with the needs and demands of uh, a new world. And one of the ways which I will demonstrate that happened uh, was how Sharia actually uh, limited the size and scope of a business in the Islamic world. So in the Islamic world, uh, the business didn't possess legal rights uh, because Islam only recognized people, not corporations. Um, so that meant that an Islamic partnership lacked entity shielding, um, exposing its assets to third-party demands, as well as allowing for any partner to take unilateral action to dissolve it. Um, while the personal assets of passive investors were shielded from liabilities that the partnership might incur, no such allowances were made for active partners. The debt of a partner also meant the debt of the business because uh, the partner's heirs were given an immediate claim to his share and then the remaining partners were left to incur all the costs. This contributed to merchants being discouraged from forming large or long-term partnerships uh, out of fear of an untimely dissolution. And that just kept most businesses in the Islamic world small. Now, people have argued that um, the partners could actually try and negotiate with the heirs and continue the business or they could even buy out the rest of the shares but if if you think about the number of heirs that you would have to negotiate with that just makes it seemingly impractical it is a noted phenomenon that um, sharia allowing for polygamous relationships meant that most merchants had a larger number of heirs uh, compared to their western counterparts now, you could also argue that uh, you don't necessarily need a partnership to have a large business. Of course, many sole traders can be successful on their own. But once again, uh, in the Islamic world, the continued success or survival of a business after the death of its owner was very rare for this very same reason, because uh, once all the heirs got their share of the business after the death of their uh, father, that just meant that the business was fragmented into many smaller pieces. And once again, uh, this, the, the size of this business remained small. 
Now, even if the Western counterparts had the same number of heirs, um, the reason why inheritance law played a bigger role in fragmenting businesses in the Islamic world than it did in the West was because Islamic inheritance law is very specific about the number of shares that go to each sibling and other areas such as charity, whereas their European counterparts didn't have any such restrictions. And often the majority of the share would go to one child, perhaps the eldest sibling. Now, Islam also forbids extramarital relationships, and so culturally, many Muslims got married at a comparatively younger age. Uh, you've got studies by Demur and Zandon who kind of place uh, importance in the impact of Northwestern European men and women putting off marriage uh, until later on in life. Uh, uh, on institutional reform in early modern Western Europe. Um, they argued that it allowed them to accumulate more human capital. Uh, and we can kind of infer from this that this put the men and women in the Islamic world getting married at an early age at more of a disadvantage. But of course, uh, that can be contested. So an important question could be why Islamic institutions began to stagnate and didn't evolve to meet the needs of the business community um, as the West did. And perhaps a link could be drawn to the scholars who were independently funded, uh, who made a living through uh, trade or belonged to merchant families, now being completely funded by the government. So not enough importance was given towards um, business and trade and reform in those areas, or to even introduce new legislation that might serve the business community's interest. So there was there was essentially a reduction in the dynamism of, of, of lawyers and sort of the legal sector uh, at that time. Yeah, every everyone kind of like, if you're going to imprison and persecute independent-minded scholars um, and businessmen, then people would just be less likely to um, challenge the government narrative or challenge what the government wants. And that, that kind of stifles creativity and stifles dynamism. And uh, we, what you get is stagnating institutions. I suppose just to uh, enlighten listeners a little bit further as to the kind of general ideological uh, framework we're sort of using here, I suppose it's really institutionalism, you could argue, because we're looking at illegal and business institutions in the Islamic world and how the way they functioned influenced the way that society flourished or failed to flourish to a greater or lesser extent. Um, and it's quite interesting we're actually doing this with the Islamic world because when, for example, with me and Mohammed at King's, often the examples they use to look at institutionalism would be America, UK, France, Germany, Western examples in the contemporary setting, but actually the sort of process of looking at institutionalism and how it and how institutions affect society more broadly can be put in place in any kind of historical setting which is in a sense kind of what we're trying to do here really applying these rules uh, and viewpoints to a historical non-western setting um i just wanted to also ask a question about the islamic tax system as well and what kind of role that might have played in development in the islamic world 
So the Islamic world had a tax system to finance certain expenditures as laid out in the Quran, um, which was mainly for social welfare, education, and religious endeavors. So under the name of zakat, this tax system evolved from informal takes paid by the religion's earliest converts. Um, and then it's kind of like grew and evolved into a tax system um, to finance the expenditures of the, the state itself. Um, now, the tax system of Sakat was a progressive tax that promotes social justice. It had a low rate that was fixed in nature and dependent on the form of income and the type of wealth that a person accumulated. Those before a certain level of income, as well as people with disabilities, were exempt from paying it and were instead eligible to receive Zakat payments. Now, compelling the wealthy to contribute a fixed percentage of their income every year meant that there was a ceiling on the state's obligation and the government's hands were tied when it came to taxation. It also laid the foundation for limited government interference and equitable and predictable taxation. So as the Islamic State grew in size and as the religion spread across the Middle East and beyond, the populations uh, were not very receptive to paying a fixed tax uh, to the government. And as always happens, uh, influential and wealthy groups tried to circumvent the requirements of uh, zakat, and they started to get certain forms of income that were previously uh, meant to be taxed um, to become exempt. But this had far-reaching consequences because then the Islamic State's ability to raise revenue through zakat was diminished. And then it forced them to look at other forms of taxation. As such, taxation in the Islamic world ceased to be predictable or capped. So, so basically, the, the wealthy and influential groups kind of shot themselves in the foot because what ended up happening was that the government just began to arbitrarily seize land and seize wealth um, from them just to finance the state um, instead of what was basically a religiously mandated and adhered to um, small percentage that they were doing so previously. And that led to something called waqfs. Now, a waqf is an Islamic trust created for the provision of a specific service. And in the pre-modern Islamic world, it was providing many of the same services that corporations were providing in Europe. Um, they have some similar elements, such as it could outlive its founder and staff, but it kind of lacked the ability to be self-governing. The founders' wishes and objectives for a waqf were recorded, and it was extremely difficult to modify them or to make changes to its own internal rules. And this lack of flexibility, unlike corporations, kind of made it comparatively less useful. Um, still, a founder could not only make himself the caretaker of the waqf, he could also draw a salary from it and was free to choose its beneficiaries. Just as the original zakat rates had protected property by ensuring taxation was capped, the perception of waqfs as sacred acted as a deterrent too because it meant that the government was afraid to confiscate such assets and risk coming across as impious. And due to the ability to shield assets, a large amount of private resources were allocated to waqfs. By the 19th century, it wasn't uncommon to find almost half of all real estate endowed as a waqf depending on the location. Now, the rigid nature of a waqf also led to an increase in corruption. This was because the owners would attempt to reallocate the wax resources, and perhaps to take advantage of new technologies or changing prices. But the only way they could do so was by exploiting vaguely worded deeds, uh, or the authorities turning a blind eye, or bribing officials or judges. And this became such a common occurrence that it became seemingly acceptable to break the law in this manner. And thus, a culture of corruption inadvertently flourished. And Curran kind of believes that this is the reason why Middle East 
countries rank so low in regard to rule of law? That's very interesting to hear. Um, and looking at corruption and as well lack of taxable state income, I'm just wondering if you could enlighten us further as to the effects of a low tax base on a state. Um, it could be looking at the Islamic world in particular, but it could also be a kind of general conversation as well, because I'm, I'm thinking in my mind, surely that would mean that the state would have a smaller military or smaller capacity to support businesses, for example, if it doesn't have an effective tax base. So I'm just wondering um, what the effects of this difficulty in taxing people had on the Islamic world? Uh, so it was exactly that. Um, it was exactly those things that you mentioned. Um, a limited tax base, especially when you're not sort of like exploiting natural resources such as oil, it, it means that the government has less revenue to provide services. Um, so it immediately limits their role. And then when you think about military and expanding the state, uh, you need to be able to pay the soldiers. A lot of times um, the governments would take out either loans or they would uh, seize properties or uh, increase taxes. So if you have like a low tax base, then the government is limited in what it can do. That's very interesting to hear. And I suppose maybe one of the advantages that Western Europe may have had uh, during the Renaissance, but also in further times in the 17th and 18th century was that you had actually smaller states, which were more autonomous and had smaller governments. And therefore it was easier to regulate taxation over a smaller area. Now you were talking about in the Islamic world, how you had an empire um, at least in the early stages, so say 9th or 10th century, that tried to expand across a much larger area, encompassing a larger number of people, but still using the same kind of legal framework and tax collection framework, even though it may not have fit into the new populations kind of absorbed into the wider state. Whereas I think in Europe, I mean, you have exceptions such as the Habsburg Empire and the Holy Roman Empire but you generally have a prevalence of smaller states with smaller tax bases, yes, but still a more manageable kind of area to extract wealth from and then use for the advancement of state services and subsidies towards industry and so forth. Um, you could even argue as well that if you have a sort of a large area, but geographically divided into smaller states, there could even be a greater level of competition between the states. And this is something that has actually been perpetuated as an argument for why the Renaissance and the Enlightenment occurred in Europe to some extent, because you have, you know, the Germans and the Italians and the French kind of going off against each other because geographical borders and legal cultures almost encourage a greater prevalence of individual states, but still because of that greater number of states, a larger amount of competition and competition in itself driving forward innovation and new ideas and so forth. I'm just wondering, just in terms of a kind of geographical perspective on the Islamic world, um, both in sort of the Middle Ages, but perhaps also after that as well, what, what kind of role do you think geographical features may have played in innovation and development in the Islamic world, would you say? Moving back to your discussion on um, sort of like Europe being 
fractured into smaller states. Um, there's actually a, a school of thought that says that Europe being fractured into smaller states that were constantly warring with each other led to improved military technology that uh, the Islamic Empire did not enjoy. Um, so basically, uh, because of the Europeans' uh, experience built through years and years of just constantly being at war, they just became more efficient at it. And they were able to develop better weapons and better technology. So that's one school of thought. But I mean, it is highly contestable. But then moving back uh, to your question about geography playing a role, uh, there is actually a school of thought that does consider that. I think it's authors such as Diamond and Sachs who believe that geographical elements such as climate, shape of the land masses, ability to produce crops, and energy endowments play an important role in the development of nations. But then you've got uh, authors like Rubin who argue that um, studies that focus on geography don't adequately answer how the Islamic world was so far ahead at one point and then fell so far behind. I suppose like anything, it has to be a combination of different factors that you need to consider to explain the rise and fall of different empires and states. Just on your point around uh, the role of warfare, I mean, I know it's a much more contemporary example, but the example I always think of is the Second World War. Um, and you think about the development of nuclear energy after the war and the use of that as a viable source of power. It has its origins in the Manhattan Project and the development of the atom bomb. But then decades later, you have the use of nuclear power as something that actually powers a great number of different homes across, across Western Europe and the US. Um, and I, th I think there are many examples of warfare actually leading to material improvements um, after the actual fighting is over. It's an interesting point. Uh, I mean, as you know, uh, Islamic rulers were reliant on the military as one of the main propagating agents, um, the other, of course, being uh, religious authorities. And we've come to the conclusion that the decline of the Islamic empire happened due to stagnating Islamic institutions that weren't able to evolve effectively to compete with the industrial revolution in the West. And that was due to the marginalization of independent minded scholars uh, in favor of uh, the military and religious authorities. So let's take a look again at the relationship between a ruler and propagating agents is one based on quid pro quo. The propagating agents will only support the ruler if they expect to get something in return for their efforts, um, usually in the form of policies or laws uh, that would help them further their own interests. Rulers that are reliant on propagating agents must keep their interests in mind whenever making new laws or policies if they want to count on them again. Those rulers, especially reliant on particular propagating agents, would be wary of upsetting them. For example, if the ruler is reliant on the military to stay in power, he would be really foolish to enact laws that are detrimental to the military's interests. Likewise, if a ruler is dependent on religious legitimacy, he might be foolish to enact laws that go against religious doctrine or angered the clergy. Developments in the West didn't occur due to the benevolence of its rulers, but through the epic struggles of organized groups, usually in the shape of corporations who demanded rights. Their success led to policies and regulations conducive for the strengthening of property rights and a civil society that in turn promoted the sustainable development of private organizations. Uh, this didn't happen in the Islamic world because time and again there was a failure by commercial entities uh, to band together and create an influential association or a merchant organization. This takes us back to the argument that any powerful interest group 
group that doesn't prioritize economic growth is less likely to oversee economic success. So we can conclude that the Islamic world remained economically underdeveloped because unlike Western rulers having to deal with powerful commercial bodies, the Islamic rulers only had to worry about keeping the religious bodies and the military happy. Uh, well, thank you for uh, joining us today in our discussion of the rise and fall um, of the Islamic world and the factors that contributed to that. Um, yeah, join us next time. Thank you very much.